Well, good morning, and we welcome to Redeemer Bible Church. Um, some of you are probably wondering who I am. My name is Jenner Uhas. I'm uh, just a fellow member here at Redeemer. Uh, why am I up here? Um, obviously, our elders and our pastor, uh, they're out for a little bit, and so they need someone to fill the pulpit, and so they, they asked me to step up here and do that. Uh, it's, a, it's a humble honor. I know there's many people that have filled this pulpit, including our elders and our pastors and those who do it. Uh, and they're great men, and so it's a humbled, I'm humbled and honored to be up here to be able to speak uh, to you and proclaim God's word to you. I think you guys already know this, but uh, this is a reminder for me uh, that no one in this pulpit thinks they have it all together. Uh, no one who speaks up here, no one who sings up here, no one who does uh, anything before you at this church thinks that they are better because they're up here and you're down there. Uh, it has nothing to do with that, and I can honestly say I know I don't have it together. Uh, I'm not preaching because I know uh, this word better. I'm not preaching because I, my life exudes this. Uh, I'm preaching because the Lord has called me to do this, and I hope that we can learn together, that we can sit under the teaching of God's word uh, hand in hand as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. So as the tradition of our church, I know you just sat down. This always happens every Sunday. Uh, please stand with me in honor of God's word as we read it aloud. We'll be in Luke 17, uh, continuing on in our, our study of Luke together as a church. Luke 17, 11 through 19. And it reads, On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers, who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, <clears throat> Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Please be seated. <clears throat> so a quick summary of the text is Jesus is traveling along to Jerusalem and he, he's approached by 10 lepers and he cleanses these 10 lepers, but only the Samaritan with leprosy worships Christ with a grateful heart for cleansing him. Now this is a real story. I think up front, this is important to note. Uh, we've read a lot of parables in the, in the book of Luke and throughout the gospels. Uh, and we think you know, those are great because they apply to our lives. A parable is a, a story with a message and we can apply that to our lives. I think we can quickly take a narrative like this and just brush it over and be like, oh, that's a historical story. But that's not for us. Uh, I'm not in first century church. I don't have leprosy. Uh, I'm not sick. I'm not dying. I'm not excluded. Uh, how does this apply to me? But I would argue that this applies to every single person here, and I hope to, to get there. Uh, and the main point that I'm driving with this text for all of us is that Christian worship is the result of gratitude for who God is and what he has done. And we can see this example by the Samaritan from this passage. I'll say it again. Christian worship is the result of gratitude for who God is and what he has done. So please join me as we dive into this text and try and get to that point. First off, we see, and as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. So Jesus is traveling through, the, uh, through Samaria and Galilee on his way to Jerusalem, and he's met by 10 lepers. Some of you are asking, what's leprosy? If you've been in the church before, I'm sure you've heard that term. If you've read some of the Old Testament, uh, even in some of the New Testament, you, you've heard the term leprosy. But what exactly is leprosy? Why is this important? First thing to note is that leprosy, 
uh, is talked about a lot in the Old Testament. We, hear, we see a lot about it in Leviticus 13 through 14. And if you read that, it actually sounds like a medical document. Leprosy is a, it's a term given to uh, a type of disease, a type of illness uh, from the ancient world. Uh, we still have it today in some places, but back then, uh, they gave it to, the term was given to about 70 different types of diseases and skin illnesses. Uh, they didn't exactly know what they individually were as we do today. So if someone had this visible skin disease, uh, which it likely was, you, you knew you had it, it was on your skin, it probably covered your entire body, then you were deemed to have leprosy. It was so bad that in the Old Testament times, if you had leprosy, you were regarded as having a divine punishment upon your life. And it was not a disease that you were just healed from. You just didn't go home, take some aspirin, and then the disease left you and go about your, your daily business. With leprosy, you had to be cleansed and deemed clean by a priest. Some historical contexts referred to lepers as the living dead and equated them with being equal with a corpse. Now, this is important in Old Testament times because if you touched a dead body, uh, you were considered unclean. So these people were, from the outset, considered unclean. If you touched a leper, you were considered unclean. If a leper entered your home, your house was considered unclean. And you had to go through the ritual customs of cleansing your house and cleansing yourself. Now, how did you know you had leprosy in Old Testament times? It wasn't that you just, again, you had a disease and you, you were like, oh, I think I have leprosy. As the Bible tells us, you had to go to the priest and they had to adjudicate whether or not you had leprosy. You had to go and show yourself. And based off of what is written in Leviticus and other knowledge of the time, they would tell you whether or not you had leprosy. And there was three outcomes from this adjudication. The first was, no, you didn't have it. You go home, go about your business, and you were considered clean. The second was they weren't sure. Based off their evaluation, you could have had it, you couldn't have had it. So what they would do is they would quarantine you for seven days, and on the seventh day, you'd be reevaluated. Again, you could come with those three outcomes. You didn't have it, they still weren't sure, and you had to go quarantine for seven more days, or you were deemed to be leprous. Now, if you were deemed to be leprous, this was an immediate declaration of being unclean. We read in Leviticus 13.45, the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. And he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean and he shall live alone and his dwelling shall be outside the camp. So if the priest deemed you to have leprosy, immediately you were declared leprous and you were kicked outside the city. You were kicked outside the camp, out of your dwelling. You were cut off and isolated from everybody that you knew and everything that you knew. You even had to maintain a 50-pace buffer from anybody that you would come in an interaction with. It was, it was painful, and not only could they see it on your skin, but you had to have unkept hair, and you had to wear torn clothes so people knew that you were unclean. And again, not to make matters worse, that you had this visible representation of being unclean. If anybody broke that 50-pace buffer, with a loud voice, you had to announce to them, I am unclean, I am unclean, so they wouldn't come near you. And I think this is probably worse than the, the disease itself, to be honest. It was painful, it was all over your body, but now everyone knew that you had this disease. You were announcing to everybody that I am unclean. The mental and social struggle of this was probably greatly outweighed the struggle of actually having leprosy. This was a life-altering disease on every front. You couldn't hide it. It was painful, and it significantly affected every area of your life. Now, how do we know that these 10 had this disease of leprosy? Well, first and foremost, I don't want to miss the simplicity of Scripture. We have God's word, and it says, and Luke writes, that these 10 were lepers. Uh, so right out front, we know that these men were lepers. 
But even more than that, it says that they were outside the village when Jesus entered. So they were obviously isolated away from the crowds. They probably stood at a distance, as we see here. And because Jesus traveled with crowds and his disciples and people joined him as he came into the villages to see Jesus, there was probably a great multitude surrounding Jesus. So these lepers, it's not written in the text, but were likely having to declare themselves unclean in a loud voice so that everybody who was there knew that they were unclean. I believe there was no doubt in their mind, in the mind of those around them, in the mind of Jesus, that these men had leprosy and were considered unclean. And I think this applies to our life. We'll get to a little bit more. But leprosy is like sin. It makes us unclean and we're dead. We cannot hide it and it is painful and it affects every single area of our lives. Now it continues to say that they raised their voices and called out to Jesus saying, Master, have mercy on us. Not only did they know they were unclean, but they knew who Jesus was. So as Jesus entered the village, they called him by name. They called out Jesus. So they had a working knowledge of who he was. They knew this because the stories of him healing lepers and other people in their conditions probably traveled throughout the area. We know that's how the message of Jesus was passed from village to village. Is when people were healed or great things happened, the message continued to spread and people came to Jesus looking to be healed. So they probably had an idea that not only was he a healer, but he could heal leprosy because he had done it before in Luke 5. So these 10 men lifted up their voices. It's important to know that just it wasn't one that lifted up their voices, but all 10 call him Jesus, call him master, and cry out for mercy. Now they call him master. This isn't a theological term. Uh, most of the time we would consider that to be like they're declaring to him to be Lord, for him to be God, to be a teacher, to be their savior. This is a practical relationship term. We see it used in Luke 5, 5, uh, when, Peter, when Jesus gets on Peter's boat and he takes him out to sea and he's like, Peter, cast your nets into the water. And Peter, uh, in this story, if you've read it before, is like, well, I've been fishing all night. I haven't caught anything. I don't really want to cast my nets in the boat. But he responds to Jesus and says, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. So this is a practical relationship. These lepers are acknowledging the authority of Jesus and pretty much saying, you're the boss. We're hopeless and helpless. And if you tell us that we can be cleaned, we'll trust in that authority. The only other people that refer to Jesus' master throughout the New Testament, specifically in the book of Luke too, are those who are endeavoring to follow Jesus. We don't see this from the Pharisees. We don't see this from other religious leaders or political leaders. They usually refer to him as rabbi or teacher, but they call him master. It's a term usually reserved for those who are the disciples of Christ. They knew they didn't deserve anything to be healed. They were desperate to be healed. And so they cried out to Christ, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. They had an intellectual head knowledge of who Jesus was. Now, so many people in our world, I think even today and throughout all of history, recognize Jesus for who he is. And they recognize what he is capable of intellectually. A lot of people call him God. But many people endeavor to follow, and people endeavor to be Jesus to disciples in this world that are not his disciples. They give him lip service. They know who he is intellectually, but not with their heart. So how did Jesus respond to their cry for mercy? It says, when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Jesus supernaturally and miraculously healed these 10 lepers from their disease. They cried out for mercy and he said, go and show yourselves to the priests. Now, according to Leviticus, that's exactly what they were supposed to do. 
They were supposed to go themselves to the, show themselves to the priest because even if Jesus miraculously healed them, they still had to be deemed clean. So on their minds, they were going to be deemed as clean. That's what Jesus told them to go do. Now this took faith. I mean, imagine you're outside, there's these crowds. You're not supposed to be around people. You're not even supposed to be inside the city. You have this disease covering your whole body. And Jesus says, go and show yourselves to the priests. And you look down at your arms and you can still see the disease on your arms. It wasn't just that they were supernaturally healed and they ran to the priests. It says, as they went, they were cleansed. So it shows that they all had a little bit of faith. They believed what Jesus said and they went to show themselves to the priests. And then it says they were all cleansed. All 10 of them, not just one, all 10. So what is their response to this miracle? What would be your response to this healing? If you've been suffering from an illness for years, we don't know exactly how long they were outside the city or how they had leprosy, but if you were suffering for years and months with a painful disease and you were separated from your family, what would be your response? I think my response would be, he told me to go show myself to the priest. I need to be deemed clean. I'm running to the priest as fast as I can. I'm going to get that declaration that I am clean so I can get back to my wife, to my kids, to my job, to the community that I love. But we only see one response that we can uh, accurately say what happened of one of these 10. And it says, then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, he turned back praising God with a loud voice and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. There's only one response that we see, and I think this is the response that God wants us to see. Kind of up front with this passage, it says, now he was a Samaritan. I want to point that out first before we get into his actual response. In the Jewish custom, a Samaritan was a Gentile, which means they weren't a Jew. They were enemies of the Jewish people. And so to be a Samaritan meant that no matter what, physically or outwardly, because you were a Gentile, you could still not be clean. No matter what you did outwardly, you could still not be clean. So I think Luke is expressing here, and God wants us to see this, that not only is he a leper and unclean, but he's a Gentile. This man has a double death sentence upon him. There is absolutely no way that this man can really be deemed clean. He is completely and utterly hopeless and helpless in this world. But what was his response? It says he turned back when he realized that he was healed. He didn't continue to the priests to complete the custom of being cleaned. And he didn't go show himself to other people to declare himself clean. But he did do one thing, and he went and showed himself to the great high priest. He recognized that he was clean and where the healing had come from. He knew it wasn't because of his obedience. It knew it wasn't because of some priest declaring him to be clean. He knew when God said he was clean, that he was clean. Could have been easy again for him to say, look, I obeyed. Because my faith, I'm now clean. I deserved this healing because I obeyed. But he recognized this amazing gift had nothing, nothing to do with him. And even more importantly, did he recognize the gift, but he recognized who the gift came from. He recognized the giver of this gift over the gift. And once he, re once he turned back, it says he praised God with a loud voice. Now, I think this is a beautiful picture of redemption. He's in the city. Again, he's not supposed to be in the city because he was a leprous individual. There's crowds around Jesus, his disciples more than likely, Pharisees, political leaders, people of all ages crowding around Jesus. And this same voice that he used to declare himself unclean to these crowds and cry out to Christ for mercy is the exact same voice that he is now using to praise God. 
In the same way with our lives, it's a picture of redemption. Our same bodies and our same mouths that we use to, to hate God with is the same body and mouth that Christ redeems that we can praise God with. While he was praising God, it says he fell on his face at Jesus' feet. Now the Greek here, the word actually means to fall prostrate in worship. I don't know if anybody know what prostrate means. It's you fall down on your face, arms wide open, flat, with your face in the dirt, looking downward. This is a picture of complete humility and complete submission. And he's at Jesus' feet. Remember, he's in a village. Jesus wasn't in a throne room with perfect white robes. His feet were dirty from walking. He had walked into the city. So as he's face down in the dirt at Jesus' feet, praising God for who he was. One 18th, 18th century theologian uh, described this picture of being prostrate this way. He said, it's the soul recognizing its nothingness before the magnificence of God. It's sin before, the pure, before his purity. It's ignorance before his omniscience. It's feebleness before his power. It is the creature lying in the dust and understanding what it is to have a creator and to be alive in his presence. So he recognized who Jesus was and was prostrate at his feet. And what did he do as he praised God and he was prostrate? Well, he gave him thanks. It doesn't say he was just overcome with emotion. It doesn't say he returned to Jesus saying, thank you, what can I do for you? It doesn't say he returned to Christ and say, look what I can bring. I have money, I have gifts, I have resources. This is what I can bring to you. What can I do with it? It had nothing to do with him and he recognized that. And it had nothing to do with what he could bring. He was not merely playing lip service out of thanksgiving, but his heart was a heart of gratitude. Now you could be asking there, Jenner, why are you using this word gratitude? It says he showed thanksgiving. Well, I think there's a difference between gratitude and thanksgiving. I think gratitude is a, is a condition of the heart. Uh, the, the definition of gratitude is the quality of being thankful. I think thanksgiving is an action, again, where, where gratitude shows the condition of our heart. I think one can be thankful without being grateful. It's a life that exudes appreciation for a gift that we're undeserving of. My son Noah had his fifth birthday last weekend. Um, and you can apply this in any other situation where gifts are given to little kids or even adults, uh, Christmas, birthdays, whatever it may be. Um, but he got a lot of gifts from you know, outside family and friends. And you could tell a difference between the gifts that he was given that he was thankful for and that he was grateful for. You know, he might've got received a gift he didn't get it, but you know, like socks or something, and he could have been very thankful, got on FaceTime and said, thanks grandma, I appreciate the socks. But was his heart really a heart of gratitude? No. But when he got those gifts that he wasn't expecting that he really wanted, he couldn't contain it. You could see it on his face. He jumped with joy, he was super excited to receive this. So it wasn't just that he was thankful, but his heart condition showed what he treasured. And our gratitude is also in direct proportion to how undeserving a gift is. So you think about your paycheck for work. You work so hard and you get so much compensation. We should be thankful for that, right? But we know how much work we put in and we know the wages that we've assigned up front and how much we're gonna get. But what if you received your paycheck with no strings attached that was 100 times more than you were expected to get? Would you still just be thankful? Or would you have this huge smile on your face and probably give out a loud shout and just excitement and gratitude for this thing that was completely undeserved that you did nothing to garner. The word to give thanks here in the Greek, the root of it is actually grace. So I think for Christians, we can see that our thanksgiving and our gratitude is rooted in God's grace. And our gratitude shows what we treasure. Like my son, 
You knew what gifts he wanted, and you knew what his heart really wanted. Our gratitude shows that what we treasure. I think like this, like the leper and the ten other lepers, so many other people say they will follow Jesus if he does something miraculous for them. They're promised to follow Jesus if he only does this or that for them. Their hearts will treasure the gift and the miracles, but they don't want to treasure Christ. So what was Jesus' response to the Samaritan leper? The other nine went away. He came back. What did he say? Well, Jesus talks to the crowd here, and he says, Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Jesus exalts this Samaritan above the other nine. Well, where did the other nine go? The text doesn't specifically tell us, but as we talked about, if something like this happened to you, you'd probably run directly to the priest as fast as you can to, be get, to get deemed clean so you could go back to your family, go back to the, the priorities and responsibilities you had in your life to celebrate and be thankful. And you would probably admire, they probably really did admire the, the miraculous healing that they had just received. And are these bad things in our lives to run to take care of our wives and our kids and our responsibilities and our jobs that the Lord has given us on this earth? No, not at all. I don't think anybody here would say that. But if that's all we're thankful for, we've missed the point. They were satisfied in the gift alone, and their hearts did not recognize the giver of the gift. Jesus addresses this so many times throughout his ministry. He says, if you don't love me more than, he, than you love the rest of your family, you can't be my disciple. He says, if you don't lose everything, you're not worthy to be my disciple. So these other nine probably had a lot of other things they cared about more than Christ. This Samaritan leper, on the other hand, he didn't just call Jesus master and give him lip service, but he worshiped him. He worshiped him as his master. It wasn't just lip service. So what separated the Samaritan from the other nine? I think we've seen it a little bit, but I think it was his, his gratitude for what he had been given, which resulted in a heart of worship for Jesus. So you might be asking yourself now, what's worship? Well, I think one of the best definitions I've heard for what the heart of worship looks like, and this isn't worship all-encompassing, but the heart of worship. This is by John Piper. He says, it is to experience Christ and all that God is for us in him as a more satisfying treasure than everything the world can give or death can take. And I'll say it one more time. Experiencing Christ and all that God is for us in him as a more satisfying treasure than everything the world can give or death can take. So our delight, just like the delight of the Samaritan, should be in the gift as we treasure God more than anything else in this world. Now you could also speculate, hey, the other nine weren't cleansed. He was the only one that was really clean, so he, only, he was the only one who had the reason to turn back. But Jesus doubles down again in his questioning of the crowd and says, were not the other nine cleansed? Where'd they go? I think it's also important to note here that what he asked what the other nine didn't do. He asked why they didn't come back and praise God. He didn't say, why didn't the other nine come back and give thanks like he gave? He asked, why did they not come back to praise God? Because the Samaritan came back to give praise to God and worship him out of the gratitude. It's also important to note here that Jesus claims to be God. He says, why didn't they come back to praise God? Indicative of what the Samaritan's doing, because he's praising who? He was praising God at that time. So Jesus is claiming to be God, and he's also pointing to the giver himself. He's pointing to his father. And so as the Samaritan's gratitude resulted in worship and praise as an outward expression of his heart, so should ours. 
Now this Samaritan's recognition of who God was, it brought a second healing upon his life that was not given to the other nine. The other nine were healed, but this one only received a special spiritual healing. Christ tells him to go for his faith has made him well. His faith gave him spiritual security in Christ. It was not just his admiration of the miracle, but it was his recognition of who Christ was. And again, this is different from the healing from the other nine. When Jesus says, made you well, this is the same language that Christ uses throughout his ministry to declare salvation over someone. And now why can Jesus say this in this situation? Well, as we just pointed out, he just declared himself to be God. So he's not just a prophet. He's not just a a human being on this earth, but he just declared himself to be the king of the universe. And he has the power to forgive this man's sins. And if we go back to the very beginning of the text, it's a very small note, but extremely important here, is it said Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. What was Jerusalem? It was the cross. For Christ, ever since before time began, from eternity past, the cross was the goal of Christ's earthly ministry. And that's where Christ was going. The reason he could tell this man not only was he healed from his, sin, from his disease, but also his sin, is that Christ was going to pay his ransom on the cross. Now, how does this apply to us? Again, it's a story. You could be saying to me in the crowd, Jenner, I'm, I don't, again, I don't have leprosy. I live in first world America with amazing medical technology. I don't, I don't need to be saved from this leprosy disease. But I would argue that this story applies to every single person that has ever walked the face of this earth besides Christ. The Samaritan state is indicative of every human being that has ever walked this earth. We are completely incapable of being declared clean without Christ. We are completely hopeless and helpless. I think we need to recognize our sin and our depravity. The same way that the lepers knew that they were unclean is the same recognition we need to have of our sin and our death. Now, how do we know this? I think God's word makes this clear to us. We hear of a lot of good stories of people out there doing great things with their resources, philanthropists. You hear the term, well, he's a good person. But what does God's word say? Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Genesis 6.5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in all the earth and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. Ephesians 2.1-3, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now is at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We see sin invade every single aspect of our life. It is painful, it is life-altering, and it is visible. People out there will even try and hide their sin, hide themselves as good people. But like this Samaritan leper, I think it's important to note that even if he had been cleansed from the disease, even if he didn't have any evidence of the mark of leprosy on his body because he was a Samaritan, he was still completely hopeless of being deemed clean. No matter how good we manufacture our lives to be, no matter how much we clean up the outside of our lives, we too are completely hopeless of being deemed deemed clean without Christ. And because of this sin that we have, We are all due God's wrath, as we saw in Ephesians, which is eternal 
and unthinkable punishment in hell for all of eternity. And I know some of you might be saying out there, every time Jenner gets up there, he talks about hell and wrath. But I think if we ignore this, we ignore what God's love truly means. In the same way, if, the, if we ignored what leprosy really meant and what being a Samaritan really meant to this individual, we wouldn't truly understand what it meant for him to be deemed clean from Christ. God's love is diminished when we diminish what his wrath is also like. But there is hope. And just like the leper, we have hope. Ephesians 2, 4 through 8, it continues. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Just like the lepers did nothing to deserve to be healed, and it was a miraculous gift from God, so is the fact that we can be saved. We can't do anything to be saved. There is nothing that we can manufacture on this earth, no matter how hard we try to have a right relationship with God. And this mercy and grace flows out of who he is. He is a merciful and gracious and loving God. And that is why he shows grace and mercy to us. And this is not just a fire insurance. I don't want you to think, hey, he saves us so that we can go to heaven. But we get to have a life and a relationship with Christ for all of eternity. So in light of this truth, we should have the same response as this Samaritan leper, a heart full of gratitude towards God. Now, how does this manifest itself in our daily lives? You might be saying, Jen, are you going to tell us to go out and sell everything that we have? No. Are you going to tell me to stop talking a certain way? No, I'm not. Am I going to tell you to go and move to Nepal and be a, a missionary? No. I don't think that's the message of the story, even though it's mentioned that we should give our lives to Christ many other times. I think when our affections are stirred for God and we treasure him, it does cause us to do those things. But gratitude is not the reason we do those things. A heart for gratitude for God is based on what he has already done. It's the gift that we have already received. So then why is this important? Why is it important to have a heart of gratitude? Well, first and foremost, I think it glorifies God. Uh, it's the result of a grateful heart that we worship him. So first and foremost, he is glorified in our worship. The Samaritan fell on his face and worshiped Jesus and praised him with a loud voice and gave him thanks. His outward actions were a reflection of his heart's condition. And secondly, I think it, it changes how we view God in our daily worship and in our daily prayers. When we get on our faces before God, we just don't come saying, look what I can bring. This is what I have done. This is what I can bring for you. In our small group, we've been studying what is prayer and what does prayer look like and how does that manifest itself in our lives. And every time we talk about it, the main thing we always come back to is that prayer is just a recognition that we are incapable on our own. And so when we pray, we should have this recognition that we're incapable, but out of thanksgiving for who God is that we have the capability to pray to him. And I think we should even try to fall prostrate on our faces when we pray. You're like, well, it's a heart condition. It's my prayer. You should try it. Get on your face before the Lord and see what it does for your heart. Another thing to note is Jesus didn't tell the man to stand up. When he was on his face before him, he didn't say, stand up. I know your heart condition. He stayed down on his face and praised God. I think this also leads us in our prayers 
to give daily repentance for sin. Because while Christ has redeemed us from hell and the sin that we have already committed, we still continue to commit sin. And so having an understanding of our sinful nature every single day gives us gratitude for that sin that he continues to forgive us from every single day. Our prayers should be seasoned with thanksgiving and praise all the time for who he is and what he continues to do for us. And again, it's not about asking him what he can do for us or what we can do for him. I honestly believe the majority of your quiet time every single day should be spent on your face praising God for who he is and sitting under his word. I think there's an example in Luke 18, which I think we'll get to in a couple weeks, but a Pharisee and a tax collector come together and they go to the, it says they both went to the temple to pray. The Pharisee gets up there and it's a long litany of this is what I have done, this is what I've done, look at me, look at me. But then the tax collector gets up there and he says when he went to pray, he stood far off. He wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven and he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And I think that should be the condition of our heart when we go to Christ every single day. It's not about what we've done. It's not the fact that we've done anything that can come to God in prayer and have that communion with him. It is based solely on the fact that Jesus has redeemed us. And if you're not there, I think in a daily way, you should ask God to set your affections for him. This is not an easy thing to do to have a heart of gratitude, but God can do it in all of our lives. And I think even also in corporate worship, not just our alone time, as we come here together to celebrate on Sunday mornings, we should come humble and we should come understanding that we don't bring anything for God. I am not better than the person sitting next to me. I'm not better than the person sitting down there or standing up here. We are all in the same state before Christ as redeemed sinners. Third, I think it creates a life of contentment. If we've already been given the greatest gift of all time, what does anything else matter? There's nothing else in this life that compares to the gift of Christ. Philippians 3.8 says from Paul, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Nothing else in this life matters. And if we've already been given the greatest gift, everything else is rubbish. And lastly, I think it changes our view of every single personal relationship, every single interaction with every human being we ever have. And I believe this is the hardest one to do on a daily basis, and this is probably the one I struggle with the most. In your marriage, in your parenting, in your obedience to your parents, interactions with your coworkers, your family members, and your neighbors. I think it's impossible to have a heart of pride and arrogance when you're on your face before Christ. You can ask, well, people, they were mean to me. Brad talked about this last week. How do we forgive someone? How do we have the ability to forgive someone seven times seven times seven? Well, it's because we know what we've been forgiven from. How did the early church Christians and many of those around today in the world endure beatings and mutilations and torture and death with love and joy for their enemies? It's because they recognized who they were in Christ and they recognized what they had already been saved from. This changes our evangelism. It realizes that you're nothing special, that you've done nothing to be saved. You've done nothing to become a Christian and have this relationship with Christ. It's easy for us to look at other people and be like, oh, he's too far off. He can't be saved. But when he recognizes what we are all on the same playing field and we are all dead in our sin before Christ, everybody has the capability of being saved. And I think this also affects our interaction with the church. Again, it's impossible to be prideful and conceited when you're on your face before Christ. Francis Chan puts it this way in one of his new books. He said, it's hard to start an argument with someone who is on their knees shouting praises to Jesus 
especially when you're busy blessing the Lord as well. If you're both on your face before Christ with your face in the dirt praising God, how are you supposed to look to the person to the right or left to you and cause a fight with them? So if you're here this morning and you are not a Christian and you're like, this is crazy what Jenner's talking about. And the Lord has stirred your heart to ask more or to seek more. I ask, we'll pray that God will reveal your sin to you in your life. And that once you revealed your sin in your life and you realize your state of deadness, that you would also realize that you can have life in Christ. That you would realize the reason that Jesus went to Jerusalem, that he went to die on a cross and be raised from the dead so that you could be ransomed from hell from all of eternity and have life in Christ. So if that's here with you today or you're online, please do not leave without talking to someone here with the elders, myself, or anybody else here who claims to be a Christian. And for the rest of us as a church, as we enter into a time of reflection and communion that Paul's gonna lead us in, I want you to ask yourself if you have the same gratitude for Christ as the Samaritan leper did. Ask yourself, am I more enthralled with the elements of communion than I am with the person that the elements represent? Do I treasure the gift over the giver of the gifts? Do I love and adore the kingdom more than the king himself? Are my affections stirred more for the healing than for the healer? Am I more grateful for salvation and not going to hell than for the savior and the champion of our salvation? And do I have a heart of gratitude that results in falling flat on my face, praising God and experiencing Christ as a more satisfying treasure than everything the world can give or death can take? Please pray with me. Christ, you are more than anything else that this world has to offer. You alone are worthy of our praise and our affections, Lord. And I ask that you would stir our hearts to see your wrath and what we've been saved from in a way that daily we show you gratitude for who you are and that results in worship every single day in every single way. Lord, in the same way that sin affected our life in every single way, that it was life-altering. Lord, I ask that the new life that we have in you would be life-altering in every single opportunity. Lord, I pray as we come and take the, the elements of communion, Lord, that we would just be enraptured with who you are and your work in Jerusalem and on the cross, Lord, and what you've done on the cross to forgive us of our sins, Lord, that just even as we think about in the next five minutes, Lord, that we would just have a heart of gratitude that falls flat on our face before you in appreciation for what these elements represent. It's in your name we pray. Amen.